0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our new co-host Tanya Mosley has today's interview. It's a lot of fun. Here's Tanya to introduce it. Author Samantha Irby has made a
2: living writing about the stuff we all think about but rarely say out loud. From our daily biological functions to the New Year's resolutions we delude ourselves into thinking we'll keep, Irby delves into a new set of funny situations in her latest collection of essays called Quietly Hostile. In it, she takes us through her rise as a Hollywood TV show writer, the trials of getting turned away at swanky restaurants for not dressing hip enough, to almost getting a popular cable network to turn her first book into a TV show, the operative word being almost. As a self-described high-functioning, anxious, and depressed person, Irby also gives us plenty to laugh about with her stories about domesticated life, moving from Chicago to Kalamazoo, Michigan for love. Her new book is titled Quietly Hostile. She's written four others, including We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, Meaty, New Year, Same Trash, and Wow, No Thank You. Irby has also written for Lindy West's show Shrill and was a co-producer and writer on the Sex and the City reboot and Just Like That. Samantha Irby, welcome to Fresh Air.
3: Thank you for having me. I am nervous, but excited. (laughs)
2: Well, you know, fans of yours have watched you evolve through your writing, which started with your popular blog on MySpace. And this latest collection, Quietly Hostile, picks up where your last book left off. Can I have you
3: read a passage from the chapter Body Horror? Gladly. In my mid to late 20s, I had one of those mid to late 20s epiphanies you have when you get your first twinge of sciatica or when some other age-related corporeal breakdown makes itself known to you. It triggered the crushing realization that I was not going to be young and lubricated for much longer and caused my brain to fry like a Partnership for a Drug-Free America egg. Wait a minute, my lower back aches? I should probably start paying my bills on time. When I was a teenager, I thought 27 was the definitive full stop age I needed to have my shit together by, based, I'm pretty sure, solely on this article I'd read in a magazine that said you have until age 27 to shrink the fat cells in your body or be stuck with them forever. Imagine this world where it seemed plausible that I could be fat for the first 26 years of my life, then go on, I don't know, the Atkins diet, eat hot dogs for a year, and then magically become skinny for the rest of my life. Think of how hopeful you got to be to believe something like that. I wish I still had that optimism. Um. I think all of us have that optimism in our (laughs) Twitter. Yes, yes, yes. I do wish I believed things more, (laughs) like, believed in change more. I still am, like, optimistic, you know, hopeful, uh, cautiously hopeful, but I wish I I really, like, believed I had the power to change anything. (laughs)
2: To change any and everything, including your body. yeah. Um, You also, in this book, I mean, you're very real, like that chapter. You're also fielding job offers from Hollywood while somehow making the management of your Crohn's disease and getting a prescription for an antidepressant funny. (laughs) What's your barometer for too much information? Is there actually such a thing?
3: Yes. I, you know, people all the time will say, like, how do you – are you afraid of what you put out there? Um, I sat in on this, like, memoir writing class once, and um, this woman was, like, reading a thing she'd written, and she started crying, and I was like, oh, you should not work on that anymore. And she was like, why not? And I'm like, because you clearly – like, it's painful to you. So anything that I because like when you put a book out into the world, you have to be prepared for people to talk to you about it until you die right like if you meet someone and they've read your book they'll you know they'll be like, you know on page 72 I hated that thing you said and then <laughs> you, you gotta talk to them about it so if 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 I can't have a conversation with a stranger about the thing that I wrote, I won't put it in a book.
2: Well, the name of the book is Quietly Hostile. You say that's how you describe your public persona. Yeah. What does being quietly hostile actually look like? What does that it mean? It
3: looks like an outer shield of Midwestern politeness and charm. I'm very charming. Under the surface, my blood is always at a high simmer. It's not boiling, but it is. <laughs> it is bubbling a little bit
1: yes
3: (laughs) yes yeah Yeah. it's always just like a constant low grade frustration with everything but like keeping a keeping a nice face on it
2: (laughs) yeah with a smile yes yeah some have described your work as funny self-help you call it more of a survival guide what do you mean by that
3: I mean I am a I am in no position to truly help anyone right like I have some tools and tricks that if people want to adopt, it'll get them from point A to point B because that's essentially, like, what I'm doing. I'm just trying to get to the next thing. I don't have any long-term goals. I don't make any plans. I just am trying to find a way to get to whatever is happening after this. You know what I mean? And so, like, help... I I don't know if I'm—if I'm helpful to people, that is incredible, and I feel great about it. Even if it's just to give them a laugh, right? Like, I always want to be useful. I want someone to have a lift in their day because of some joke I made. I'm
2: curious, would you ever consider, or have you ever done stand-up comedy?
3: Uh, no, and I wouldn't consider it because—this <laughs> I have a real answer for— Stand up comedy, <laughs> it's like the only medium where the audience is encouraged to be rude to the person on stage. And I can't, I can't get heckled. You know what I mean? Like, I will pass away on stage <laughs> if I get heckled. I, oh my God, just thinking about it, like, I'm gonna break out in a cold sweat. Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> no, well let's not get it's you. Okay, like... <laughs> it's okay. It's, but storytelling, which I have done, like Chicago has a big used to. I don't know how big it is now, but um, a live lit community, which is essentially like storytelling, and there are all these storytelling shows, and I performed live in front of a mm-hmm. live audience, and I performed yeah, live for yep. years and years. But like a storytelling audience is like prepared to cry. And, uh, like, pleasantly surprised when you make them laugh. Stand-up audiences are like, make me laugh, idiot. And I don't, need that kind of pr- I don't need that kind of pressure. For years, as I
2: mentioned, you had been describing yourself as a high-functioning, depressed person with anxiety. But did I read that you most recently were diagnosed with OCD?
3: Yes, like nine months ago. I was like, I mean, the pandemic really like broke my brain, right? Like I didn't leave the house at all like for two years and I sort of like regressed into this like feral creature who all of a sudden was terrified of everything outside, right? Like in the grocery store, I'd be like, I'd feel like people were chasing me or, like, in the car. I always thought people were trying to run me off the road. And I was like, well, I could uh, be insane and suffer or I could find a psychiatrist. So I found a psychiatrist who's, like, really great. And, like, we just, like, talked and I described, like, the the way I think and the things I think about and some of my habits. And she was like, yeah, that's OCD. And, like, you know, we had session after session and she was like, yeah, everything you say is leading me to believe you have OCD. And so then uh, she put me on Zoloft um, and then we bumped the dose <laughs> higher and higher until it started to work. And yeah, I am still, I didn't write about it because I feel like I'm still navigating it. I don't like to write about a thing until I have a handle on it or I actually have something to say about it. Um, So yeah, OCD. I thought it was just like hand washing and, you know, checking the light switch a million times. But uh no, it's a lot of stuff that I do, like uh, like glamorous hoarding and uh, ruminating on the same thought for two hours. Has
2: it felt like a relief to finally have a diagnosis? Yes.
3: Although I will say, so it's great to know, but like the best therapy for OCD is exposure therapy. And because all of the things I'm afraid of... Are in my own brain, right? It's hard to expose myself to. See. It's not like exposure therapy. Meaning, meaning okay, like so if you have a hard like, time going to concerts, right? Because you're, or you have a hard time being in a crowd. Exposure therapy would be like working with your psychiatrist to figure out like how how you could go to a concert and stay there without freaking out or leaving. So my fears are like. Hey, what if that guy across the street walks over here and punches me in the face? Like there's no way to expose yourself, so I my assignments have been to and maybe I'll publish these to write really detailed like scenarios that are fear like that would instill fear or inspire fear in me and read those aloud multiple times a day until they sort of lose their power and that is wow. torture have you done it already that exercise oh, yes. okay so you've done this mm-hmm. exercise already yeah It's too much. I mean, it's the kind of thing where like (laughs) the first couple times I was like, oh, maybe I don't want to be fixed because this feels horrible. You know, I was like, oh, this is the way to get better. Maybe I'll just be nuts. (laughs) You know, but I kept doing it. I still do it. Like every week I have to come up with a new Thing that terrifies me and then read it over and over and over until I don't know that they've lost their power, but I'm I'm maybe number to the idea of the things that scare me now.
2: You know, this is really interesting, too, because what you have written about for so many years is that something that was always your dream is to be able to just be in your house all the mm-hmm. time to never leave your house. <laughs> yeah. But the pandemic exacerbated that. I think I remember you writing something like, I love, I can't wait for there to be a time when you can wear your outside clothes, your inside clothes outside. <laughs> yes. Well, we're doing that now, yes. right? We're wearing jogging pants everywhere. I love it. But really that, yeah, that isolation though was a little too much. For yeah. You. It
3: was bad. It was so bad. And I didn't, you know, as an inside person, I thought, like, I am I was made for quarantine, right? Like, I hate going places. I, I had a book come out at the beginning of the pandemic and I didn't have to go anywhere to sell it to anyone. I could just sit in my chair and do a virtual thing and talk to people on the computer and that felt really great. But, like, a year into that, I just was like, oh, I am – I could, like, feel myself kind of, like, shriveling up, right? I mean, it was scary enough for me to uh, call a psychiatrist I have to pay out of pocket. So (laughs) pretty (laughs) terrifying.
2: (laughs) Sam, when you stayed in L.A., you were working on the Hulu series Shrill, which is loosely based on writer Lindy West's book Shrill, uh, Notes from a Loud Woman. And in this episode that you wrote, it's titled Pool, and the main character, Annie, is played by adie Bryant. Um, she writes for an alt-weekly paper called The Weekly Thorn, and she pitches this idea of attending a fat girl pool party to her boss, Gabe, played by James Cameron Mitchell. And Gabe likes to write about the obesity epidemic. Um, So I want to play a clip from this episode that you wrote. Annie, uh, who has been editing the calendar, she wants to write more. And so she pitches this idea of this pool party. Let's listen.
4: All right, I've got a call in five. That means you're going to email me your pitches. That'll be all. Oh, actually, Gabe, if I could just give you a quick pitch. Didn't I literally just say email the pitches? Yes, yes. But you're going to give me a pitch. Yes,
2: well, I heard about this pool party, and it's all about inclusivity
4: and celebrating word. larger bodies, and they sent it to the calendar, but I think it could be a cool story. Bodies in a pool. That's not a story, Annie.
5: Okay, but it, it actually is about a lot more than that.
2: It's about people feeling comfortable in their own skin.
4: The last thing we need is everybody feeling comfortable in their Own skin That would be the 70s. My gut instinct is that it's not a good fit. Great fit for the calendar. Go crazy with that. Okay, and you should definitely trust your gut, but I also think that my last article is proof that my instincts might be good too, right? Annie, we gotta pace ourselves. Remember Gutenberg's second idea after the printing press? No. Exactly. The answer is no. Thank you so much. Are we good?
2: Yeah. That was a clip from the Hulu series Shrill, an episode that you wrote, and Annie ends up going to that pool party anyway, and she joins in, and this episode came out a few years ago. You know, Sam, there are still videos online on TikTok of people crying tears of joy while watching this. Really? Um, There is. Yeah, people who are saying they feel comfortable in their skin after watching that episode and seeing themselves, because we don't typically see... I guess big body people wearing swimsuits and being happy about it's it. True. I mean, how did how did you come up with this episode?
3: Well, first, I didn't know about the TikToks because I watch uh TikToks that other people put on Instagram because I'm 43. You're not on TikTok. No, yeah. I can't you know, I can't, I can't. But <laughs> that is so nice. I so we we had a ten episode season and we knew that we wanted Annie to have kind of the same epiphany that Lindy had and like there's no way on TV to be like hey <laughs> watch this character flip through a lot of pictures of like fat women in their underwear to fee- you know to like feel better about her body which is like what we did you know um so we needed to like come up with a vehicle that would be like something that would open her eyes and Lindy and I both had been to separate um fat babe pool parties. I went to the Chunky Dunk um and there there are some mm-hmm. others and 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 we've been to like fat girl exercise classes and you know fat girl clothing swaps that kind of thing. And We just wanted, like, a catalyst through which Annie would emerge, like, feeling better about being fat. And we thought, like, a pool party would be great because then we could, like, do a thing that I don't know that has ever been done. Nobody research and tell me. But, like, actual fat people in bathing suits on TV... I was like, if we get away with this, it's going to feel like a coup. So I wrote the episode. I turned it in. And I remember walking in and seeing the pool and being like, oh, my God, it looks, this is perfect. What a vision. And then, because I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop, I was like, oh, but is this room full of extras going to be like Hollywood fat? You know what I mean? I was worried that I would go in to say hello. And there's nothing wrong with the size six, but that is not a fat person or a size eight even. (laughs) And I was just like holding my breath like, oh, please. And then Lindy and I walked in to say hi to all the extras And there were just all these big, glorious bodies being treated well. I don't want to divorce them from, like, being people, but it's the bodies you notice first. And they were, like, making custom swimsuits for people. And hair and makeup was happening. And it was just, like, this beautiful dream. And I was like, I cannot believe that we get to do this. Now... No one has let uh, anyone do this since, (laughs) so this might be our, like, one unicorn, uh, fat, naked people episode. But it, I mean, it was a dream. Like, I still am, like, in disbelief that we got to do it with no pushback.
2: Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with author and screenwriter Samantha Irby. Samantha's new book, Quietly Hostile, is out now. It's her fourth series of essays, which follows her 2020 book, Wow, No Thank You, and her 2017 book of essays, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. Irby was also a co-producer and writer for the Sex and the City reboot in Just Like That. We'll be right back. I'm Tanya Mosley. This is Fresh Air.
0: Black Twitter: A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. What does it mean to be black in America? An NPR's Black Stories Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences. You'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.
2: This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Samantha Irby, author of the new book, Quietly Hostile, a collection of funny essays about her personal and professional life. So, Sam, there's a chapter in your book about the question people who have chosen not to have children often get. And that's, don't you wish you had a kid? And your response is, Do I wish I could sit idly by and witness all the things I hate about myself in a person? How do you respond to that question in real life? And does it actually bother you for people to still ask you that?
3: It doesn't bother me because it gives me a chance to um, do a bit. I always love the opportunity to do a bit. (laughs) And that is what I say to people, especially people who know me. I'm like, okay, my body's a wreck. Um I am mentally unwell. What part of like what part of you wishes that I was a person who had a kid? It's so weird how people will ask you something like that's like deeply personal, right? Just reflexively, like, hey, aren't you, aren't you sad you didn't have a kid? First of all, what if I am sad? Are you gonna help me pick up these pieces of myself you just shattered on the floor <laughs> for your amusement? No, you're probably not. But also, it's just like, I have I didn't have a good childhood, and I'm a person who is like, oh, I don't ever want to subject anyone to the life I could provide for them right because it's it wouldn't be great at least like before now right if I had a kid during my childbearing years uh, that kid would have suffered and my life would have been hard and I lived that as a kid so I don't want to do that to another child. So, no, I... Your parents were both quite a bit older when they had Yeah, they were 40 and 50. My mom had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis uh, four or five years before she got pregnant with me, and her OB was like, don't have a baby. And, like, everyone in her life was like, don't have a baby. But she wanted to have a baby because she'd had my sisters when she was really young and was finally in a position. She had a house. She had a husband. She was finally in a position to, like, do it the right way. And I that lasted for a few years, and then everything fell apart. And it was like, hey, Mom, I'm here now, but your OB was right. I should be in, like, the shadow realm somewhere, like, floating around. But I... I I don't know how to look a kid in the face and be like, yes, I willingly brought you into this earth or brought you onto this earth, like knowing what I know about myself and about the world. Good luck, <laughs>
2: you know. There's a chapter from your first book, Meaty, um, that you you talk in great detail about your mother. Her name was Grace. Um, and you break up your life in two categories before she got really sick and then after. There was something that happened when you were about nine years old that really accelerated her decline. What happened at that age?
3: She was in a car accident. She was not wearing her seat belt. And she kind of like flew across the front seat and hit her head on the rear view mirror. And a blood clot formed in her brain, unbeknownst to her. She didn't go to the hospital. And then one day I was home from school and she was sitting on the side of the bed, just like drooling and and like more incoherent than usual. And I, I don't, it took me a minute to, like, I thought she was just like gathering herself. You know, I was a little kid. Um, And she didn't seem to be, like, actively in distress. But eventually I went and got the neighbor who was like, oh, let's call an ambulance. And it turned out she had a blood clot in her brain. And when they took it out, her multiple sclerosis came out of remission. Like, in a big way. She went downhill very fast.
2: And you, I mean, the name of that chapter... Is my mother, my daughter. Mm-hmm. You refer to your mother as your baby mm-hmm. at that time. And you had to split yourself into two people. This happy, smiley, well-adjusted kid uh, who needed to make friends, who needed to be well-adjusted and do really well in school. And then also your mother's caretaker mm-hmm. and friend and nurturer at night. And this was of course, very traumatic for you.
3: Yeah. it. I mean, at the time, you know, it's just you got to do what you got to do, right? Like, I just have to do my homework and go to school and I have to help my mom. But then when you look back on it as an adult, I just am like, I mean, this is not a popular thing to say, but I do get, like, very frustrated because that's a foreseeable problem that my parents never set anything up to deal with, right? Um, there there was no, like, help mom get into assisted living fund, you know what I mean? It was just like, oh, we made all these decisions, then everything fell apart, and now we're ill-equipped to deal with them. Good luck, Samantha.
2: Your mother died when you were 18. Actually, both of your parents died when you were 18, so you never really got to know them outside of that Mm -hmm. child-parent relationship. Mm -hmm. In Meaty, you you write that you miss the idea of your mother, but you aren't really sure that you'd actually like her as an adult. What did you mean by that?
3: I mean that I, I don't know either of my parents as people. Like, I know them as my parents, but... I mean, at least old-school Black parents, in my case, they weren't the type to, like... They didn't, like, tell me their business. You know what I mean? There was no, like... Susie at work is really getting on my nerves. You know what I mean? Like we didn't have like conversations about their feelings or their friends or what was happening. And unfortunately, it has turned me into an adult who's kind of like that. Like if a kid is around when I'm trying to gossip, I'm like, you better go, you better (laughs) go get the Nintendo, brother. I have I have some rumors to spread. Um, But we never got to the point where we could talk. To each other like people, like they were very much like child in a child's place kind. I mean, my dad was fifty and he had fought in Korea, right? Like he was just like a hardened, old alcoholic. Um, and so it wasn't like they were having heart to hearts with me. Like I don't, I don't know much about them as people.
2: You lived in Chicago for most of your adult life, Mm -hmm. and then you moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan, to live with your wife and stepchildren. You're not a biological parent, but you are a step-parent. What is it like being a step-parent?
3: Well, the way I do it, it's the best. I don't try to parent those kids. I don't, I mean, I'll tell them, like, wash that plate, but I don't have to, like, discipline them. I don't have to check the homework. I don't have to do any of the stuff that makes you hate your mom. And I can do the stuff that like your cool aunt would do, right? Like buy you things your mom won't buy you. Um, And so, and that is the the way that works best for me. Kind of a, it's not hands off because I talk to them all the time, but like, I'm not making their health decisions. Like they have two very capable parents. They do not need me to play that role. So I'm just kind of like amusing, but also I'll tell you to pick your stuff up and I can drive you places. It's like very seamless. Like it works.
2: Okay, let's take a little break. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with author and screenwriter Samantha Irby. Samantha's new book, Quietly Hostile, is out now. It's her fourth in a series of essays. In addition to being a writer, Irby is also a co-producer and writer for the Sex and the City reboot And Just Like That. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase.
1: Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's
3: Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness— Search NPR, Black Stories, Black Truths, wherever you get podcasts.
2: This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Samantha Irby, author of the new book, Quietly Hostile, a collection of funny essays about her personal and professional life. Okay, one of my favorite chapters in uh, your latest book, Quietly Hostile, is the chapter, How to Look Cool in Front of Teens. I probably did the most uncool thing and read it to my team. So, um, (laughs) but I just thought it was like really funny. So I would love for you to read just a little bit of it.
3: Do not try to engage or bond with them over anything young people like. Never earnestly ask for their opinions on literally anything you enjoy. Do not mention their body ever in any capacity and try not to notice that they even have a body. Let them drive your car. How did you learn this? Was it through, you know, through experience
2: with your stepchildren? Oh,
3: yeah. Everything in there is based on an interaction that I've had with them. Like, I I don't, you know how there are like adults who don't care like what teens say or that teens are cool and they're not. That's not me, right? So when the friends are over for the sleepover, I'm not like putting on a show, but I do want them to be like, oh, your stepmom, she has tattoos, she's cool. Uh, that's actually important to me. I don't read reviews of my work, but I definitely listen to reviews of my outfits (laughs) from (laughs) (laughs) 14-year-olds. But yeah, just trial and error of seeing, like, what what makes them light up versus what makes them, like, grunt and walk past me.
2: One thing that you do just by virtue of sharing your life is normalizing being bisexual. When did you understand yourself to be bisexual? And did you ever have conflict around it, like having to make a choice?
3: Well, no conflict because, and excuse the callousness of this, but it's real. Uh, Dead parents, you can do whatever you want. Truly, I've done whatever I wanted Cause it Like, there's no one who's gonna tell me. Honestly, I didn't have the kind of parents who could be like, "Oh, you've brought shame to our family." But if they tried it, you know, I don't have to deal. I don't have to deal with that. So I can just do whatever. I think early on, I I sort of like knew I had. I would go with whomever expressed interest in me, right? Like, I knew that from an early age that if a woman came up to me and was like, I'm interested, I'd be like, I'm interested back. And same thing with a man. So it wasn't even like, I didn't have to like come out or uh, anything like that. It was just like, oh, I'm dating this person now and now I'm dating this person. I have gotten... Uh, some pushback from queers who are like, you never write about the women you dated. And, I mean, I have a policy of not making fun of women. And honestly, there there's nothing. But you make fun of men. Yes. Yes. I mean, not to turn this into <laughs> misandry today, but come on, of course, they can take it. Um <laughs> I I also have never had a woman pull the kind of stuff men pull, right? It's like, I guess I could write about that lady I'd uh, calmly watch TV with until it was like, man, this commute to your house takes too long. Let's stop seeing each other. But like that's... They don't give you funny material. No, because they're like... Nice and not damaging, but like men are like bulls in china shops, at least the ones I have dated. Let me not, let me not all men and have like given me like fodder or hurt me in ways that I've spun into comedy.
2: Followers of yours don't just know that you have Crohn's disease. You mentioned it a while ago. You have Crohn's disease. But they also know from your writing in great detail what it is like to live with it. Can you briefly explain what it is and why it's important for you to write about it with such specificity?
3: Little anecdote. Earlier today, before I came to the studio, I was, I don't know, watching some sports thing on ESPN. And there was an ad for a medication for Crohn's disease featuring a young dude, like, early 20s on a roller coaster talking about how this medication helped his Crohn's. And maybe it did, but that is doing a disservice to what Crohn's is actually like. I want to see somebody sweating on the toilet while, like, about to pass out. Um, And I want to see the medication that brought them back (laughs) from that. I feel like bathroom stuff is so... The way we are about bathroom stuff as a society is bonkers because it literally is a thing we all do. Why do we have to act like it's a shameful secret thing that we're slipping off to do and like... Lying and saying, we got to make a phone call. You know what I mean? If I can free up even one person to just announce to a dinner party, I will be gone. It will be longer than a a minute. See you when I get back. (laughs) Don't send out a search party. Then my work on earth (laughs) is complete.
2: Samantha Irby, thank you so much for this conversation.
3: <laughs> thank you for letting me. What a way to end. desecrate <laughs> the NPR airwaves, Tanya. This was <laughs> amazing.
1: Samantha Irby spoke with Fresh Air's co-host Tanya Mosley. Irby's new book is called Quietly Hostile. After we take a short break, TV critic David Bianculli will review a new Netflix documentary series hosted by Barack Obama called Working, What We Do All Day. This is Fresh Air.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays only on Hulu.
1: Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family
2: Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore.
1: This is Fresh Air. Tomorrow, Netflix premieres a new four-part documentary series called Working, What We Do All Day. It's a modern take on Studs Terkel's influential 1970s book of interviews, also called Working. This TV version is hosted and narrated by Barack Obama. Our TV critic, David Bianculli, has seen all four episodes and has a review.
4: Studs Terkel came out of Chicago as host of a long-running radio show. He interviewed people but became famous not by interviewing the rich and famous but by talking and listening to ordinary folks. He wrote several best-selling books built around these conversations. One of them, which came out in 1974, was called Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. Several years later, one of the readers of that book was a young man named Barack Obama.
5: Sometime in college, I came across this book called Working by Studs
1: Terkel,
5: which was a chronicle of people from every walk of life and what it was like for them to
4: work. There is no one way to begin. It's arbitrary. But you want to find, I suppose the word is quintessential truth, the essence of a truth.
5: It was the first time anyone had really bothered to ask ordinary people directly what work was like for them. You're fairly
1: paid? Uh, I'm underpaid, but it beats not having a job at all.
4: This is right about the time where I became interested in trying to figure out what kind of work I was going to do. This is from the opening introduction to working, but it might have served as the sales pitch at Netflix when executive producers Barack and Michelle Obama described their vision of a new documentary series. Their show would start with the issues confronted in Turkle's original book, then apply them to the present and the near future. Barack Obama's description in the opener grabs you, and from then on, this new working series never lets go. It was the 1970s. A new era of automation, global competition,
5: and offshore manufacturing. These huge forces being felt in people's lives, with the new profits-obsessed corporate culture starting to take hold.
4: It's all about this day year.
5: Fifty years later, we're in another moment of explosive change Artificial intelligence Remote work Spiraling inequality It can be hard to make sense of where we are And where we're going What if we pick up Studs Project for this new moment? What if we take three very different places and three very different industries? Home care, tech, and hospitality. What if people we might never ordinarily meet invited us into their lives and told us about their ambitions? What if we started at the bottom
4: and worked our way up? The structure of this four-part series is flawless. The first episode visits three people working for different companies in as many cities. Then the remaining three episodes spend time with new people at those same companies, but higher up the employment ladder. At a home care business in Mississippi, we meet a healthcare care worker just starting out, then her supervisor, then a Washington lobbyist for the company, then the CEO. Another CEO named Chris is the head of a self-driving vehicle design company in Pittsburgh. He confronts the undeniable reality that his self-driving trucks will put some people out of work. A bunch of people drive trucks, a bunch of people drive cars. What happens to them? My
5: expectation is that if you are a truck driver and you would like to drive a truck until you retire, then you will be able to do that because we just have so much
4: of a need for them. Um, But do I think you should probably go and start becoming a truck driver today? Maybe not. And while one visit to New York's Pierre Hotel ends up at the penthouse to visit that corporate owner, it begins in the guest rooms below, where a housekeeper named Elba describes her duties and some of the hotel guests she encounters. It's the documentary equivalent of Upstairs, Downstairs.
5: Fitting single room every day.
1: Sometimes if you are walking in the hallway and you say good morning, people don't respond. But uh, you know I don't pay attention. They have money. They dress better than me, but you know they are no better than me, you know. Morning housekeeping.
4: Sometimes these people tell their stories to the camera. But other times, director Caroline Sue brings Obama in to steer the conversation, as Studs Turkle would have. You see, no Secret Service, no TV crew, just the former president sharing a home-cooked meal with someone, or, in this scene with Randy the single-mom healthcare worker, grocery shopping with her at the local Piggly Wiggly. Obama is pushing the cart with Randy's young daughter riding inside and making happy noises as they make their way down the cereal aisle. Do you have an idea in your mind about what work should be?
5: Because some folks, like my mother-in-law and my grandmother, you know, their attitude was, I don't go to work to feel good or to get meaning or... I go to work, I to, go to, pay to, pay work to pay my bills. And I think younger folks... Mm-hmm. I think our attitude, you know Sai so I said our attitude.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're young as you feel, especially, baby. Right.
5: But especially with your generation, I think sometimes people expect that they should feel fulfilled in their work, that paying the bills isn't enough.
3: I just want to be at home, on my porch, in my rocking chair. My refrigerator's full, my bills is paid, my child is killed. That's, that's the journey. You find That's it. peace.
4: Way back in 1982 the PBS series American Playhouse presented a musical version of working with Turkle's interviews reshaped into lyrics and music by Stephen Schwartz, the composer of Godspell and Wicked. James Taylor sang one song, playing a trucker. Patti LaBelle sang as a cleaning woman. And Rita Moreno sang about being a waitress. That was an enjoyable, inventive offshoot of Turkle's original concept. But Netflix's new working is much more important. It offers a wide view of the workplace, exploring the concerns and aspirations of people on all levels of the economic scale. It's the best TV documentary about jobs and workers since Edward R. Murrow's Harvest of Shame on CBS. And that was more than 60 years ago.
1: David Bianculli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new documentary series, Working, hosted by Barack Obama. It premieres tomorrow on Netflix. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about the far-right extremist group, the John Birch Society, which was active from the late 50s through the early 70s. My guest will be historian Matthew Dalek, author of the new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Dalek says the Birchers propelled today's extremist takeover of the American right. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on our show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at nprfreshair. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Hadi Saman, Henry Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Fresh Air's co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross.
0: This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives, like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.
5: This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out, what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up first every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.